And that was the whole idea behind Locker Room, was I approached the two uh, owners of Newsroom and said we could do better. It was just a one-line email that I sent them. It was two weeks later till either one of them replied, and Tim said, let's do it. I went, let's do what? And he said, let's just cover women's sport. And I said, are you mental? The sports editor came up to me and said, um, you're now covering yachting. And I was terrified. I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about boats. I went into the women's toilets and cried and thought, how am I going to get out of this? But probably the best experience in my career was being put onto that round. And I remember one of my favourite days was <laughs> the day that Team New Zealand lost. I was doing a story about what happens before they go on the boat and I was watching and I remember St. Alan Septon, why has Peter Blake got red socks on? And you know, it was all about the superstitions that they had and of course Blake didn't sail in that race and they lost and I wrote a story about you know these red socks and were they lucky. Coverage of women's sport in this country has increased significantly over the last three or four years, but still falls well below that of men's sport. Leading the charge for increased coverage is Suzanne McFadden, who a couple of weeks ago was named New Zealand Sports Journalist of the Year at the annual Media Awards. Suzanne writes almost exclusively about women's sport these days and talks in this podcast about how that came about and what more can be done to shine a light on females. But she's also had a long association with sailing, having reported on the sport since the early 1990s. She's covered multiple America's Cups, round the world races and the Olympics, and dives into a number of stories from those events, like the time Team New Zealand tried to influence her, how Peter Blake became synonymous with red socks, her run-in with Chris Dixon, and the story behind the split in Team New Zealand in the early 2000s. Suzanne is a really engaging individual, who is happy to share her opinion on anything from quotas and professional sailing to the dangers of an unhealthy lifestyle for top athletes. She's still passionate about sports journalism after 35 years in the industry and just as passionate about women's sport, and that's reflected in her writing. I thoroughly enjoyed my time chatting with Suzanne, so I hope you enjoy listening to it. Well, Suzanne McFadden, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael Brown. And thank you for having me in your uh, lovely house out at Whanuapai, overlooking the, uh, the water here. Yeah, it's actually a beautiful day for once. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I want to dive into it because last week you were named Sports Journalist of the Year at the annual New Zealand Media Awards. What did that mean to you? It actually meant a lot more than I thought it would. I've kind of been quite reluctant to enter awards in the past and in fact I didn't actually enter this time. My husband, Eugene Bingham, who's also a journalist, he entered for me because I was saying it was a waste of time. It was. 
And um, yeah, when I did, when they called out my name, I was genuinely shocked. Um, but in the time that's passed since then, it's been amazing. And it's really the lovely feedback you get from other people to reassure you that what you're doing is right. That, you know, locker room, the section that I edit, which is solely for women's sport, um, it's appreciated and it's recognised. And I think that was, that's been the best thing out of it. It's not about me, it's about locker room and what we're doing. So it's been really cool. So you say that your husband um, put the application in for you, the entry yes. in for you. you. Were you even aware that he was doing Oh, yes. It? Yeah, I was. And he came and told me, these are the stories I'm entering. Are you happy with that? And yeah, it was more or less sign, sign on the dotted line here and he sent it off. And um, he obviously puts together an entry much better than I ever have. <laughs> so, yeah, and the really funny thing was, was the next day I got I got this beautiful silver platter with, you know, the Sir Terence McLean um, Sports Journalism Award, and on the back is engraved all the winners, and um, a friend of ours said, oh, look, yeah, your husband Eugene's won this before, and we went, no, 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 and we had a look in there 20 years ago, Eugene won it, and we cannot recall having that huge silver platter in our house for a year, but we did. So it was really cool. We're the first husband and wife to be named sports journalist of the year, so that's another kind of cool accolade. Yeah, a power couple. Yeah. <laughs> so you talked about the validation, I guess, for the work that you're doing and, and locker room. What is it like uh, to have seen the changes made to the amount of women's sport that's being covered but also the way it's being talked about. It's it's been. I I don't know if it's coincidental or if I'd like to think that we've had a small hand in it. But you know, in the last probably five years, coverage of women's sports increased from ten percent to fifteen percent, and that's. You can look at it two ways. You know, that's a that's a great. We're heading in the right direction. But 15% of coverage is still pretty poor. So, yeah, I, I think it is moving in the right direction. And what will help it is the three World Cups that will be held in New Zealand in the next two years. So you've got the Women's Cricket World Cup, the Women's Rugby World Cup, and the Women's Football World Cup. And then the International Working Group on Women in Sport Conference here, which is the biggest global conference for gender equity in sport and so this is the time for the media in New Zealand to really engage with women um, you know you, you can't fail when you've got these huge world events going to be hosted here so I am really hope that it'll be reflected right through the media this uh, an increase in coverage and that it keeps going um, yeah, I'd like to think that Locker Room has had something to do with it. Um, I'd like to think that we've um, influenced other media to, to take more of an interest. We've just kind of, you know, rung a little bell in their heads saying, yeah, really, we could do better. And that was the whole idea be behind Locker Room, was um, I approached the two uh, owners of Newsroom, Tim Murphy and Mark Jennings, and said... Um, we could do better. It was just a one-line email that I sent them. And um, 
it was two weeks later till either one of them replied. And Tim said, the first thing he said was, let's do it. I went, let's do what? And he said, let's just cover women's sport. And I was like, are you mental? Um, but we did it, we started it two weeks later. And we've never looked back and it's never been, oh, we've made a mistake here or we're not getting interest here. The interest is growing all the time. And the idea behind it was that we would tell stories that weren't being told anywhere else, that there was a gap in the media landscape and we were going to fill it, which is the whole philosophy of newsrooms. So, yeah, I hope that we've done that. I feel like we're telling good stories and that's the main reason behind it. It's not really to fly a flag or anything like that. It's just to tell really good stories. It's quite interesting you talk about that because having worked in newsrooms a lot myself, you know, these days it's it's often driven by numbers and how things rate. And we yeah. were kind of almost always told or it was implied that women's stories, particularly in sport, didn't rate. Mm. Was it seen as a risk to, to jump, you know, head yeah. first, the whole body, mm. we're all in here? Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I know that there were a lot of people outside who probably looked at it and said, this is stupid, or what are they doing, or this is sexist because you're only covering one sport. Oh, one, sorry, one gender. Um, but, yeah, I I guess it was a calculated risk because you knew that there was an audience out there and it wasn't about numbers. Newsroom hasn't been about numbers. Um, you know, we're still very much in the startup phase, but um, it, I guess they put them, you know, their, their money on me to use my experience, um, that I had a lot of good contacts in sport after 30-something years. Uh, so, yeah, I think they, I, well, I know that they feel it's a risk that's paid off. Were there ever times you doubted it was ever going to be a success? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um still get those feelings now but that's kind of I think most of us have that self-doubt that you know what am I doing does anybody care I try really hard not to look at the numbers if I do look at them I look at them at the end of the week but I had got to this point where I was looking about every hour <laughs> it was terrible I was obsessed with seeing how many people were reading it and based on that, that would determine my mood for the rest of the day. But I've since learned that that's not, you know, that's not really what it's about. And these stories, we look at them as long burners too, you know. People will come back to the site and read it. It's not like newspaper in the old days where it was there today and gone tomorrow. These stories, you know, live on. And we see them growing week by week, actually, which is it's cool. But, you know, people come back and discover them and it's really nice. So people have talked about locker room playing a really important role in this increased coverage and also specifically you and, and the role that you've played. And a few words get chucked around. Do you feel like a, a crusader or a trailblazer? No, no, absolutely not. And I sometimes struggle with that. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to carry that extra mantle. I'm, I'm very happy being a writer and telling stories but if by that by doing that that means you know I'm blazing a trail that's fine but I don't see myself as standing on a platform and, and you know waving a flag 
for women's sport. I think it's just through doing. That's how I like to see it, that we're, we're actually doing it. You know, Ashley and I are doing it, writing those stories. All our wonderful contributing writers are writing the stories and it's getting traction through that. But, um, you know, in, in saying that, I'm really happy to, to speak at events and, you know, I've done some work for you guys and I'm happy to do that, but I don't see myself as being you know, bigger or better than anyone else. I'm just a nana from Fenorpai, <laughs> my mum and a nana, and a wife, first of all, and then I write stories after that. You just briefly talked about some numbers, um, that 15% of our nation's media um, talk about women's sport, um, and that's grown from 2000, um, 11% in 2011. Now, if you look at that internationally, though, um, UNESCO report in 2018, 4% of sport mm. coverage was devoted to women. Yeah. That's 5% in the US and 7% in Australia. Yeah. What do you make of those sorts of numbers? Uh, it's, it's really disappointing when you look at them like that. I know that since those numbers have come out. Australia has made a big push um, at bettering their coverage with things like the AFLW, um, the Big Bash Women's Cricket League. Um, that They have fantastic coverage over there of that. So I think there is a movement, you know, through the world to increase. Um, but it, it's amazing to think that we are leaders, world leaders in this. Um, and again, you know, that we could do so, so much better. So you kind of, we've got time to give ourselves a little pat on the back, but not take our foot off the accelerator, really. Um, I, you know, I, this is going to be slow. It's been slow getting this far. It's going to continue to be slow. And maybe that's the way that it should be. You know, I think it's about getting acceptance right through society. So we can't expect everybody to suddenly be interested. I think it's got to become almost subconscious. Um, yeah, again, amazing to think that we're leading this. I'd like to return to that subject a little bit later on, but it's probably useful at this point um, for people to get a better understanding of your background, mm -hmm. um, which will also be helpful for those who probably tuned into a yachting podcast thinking, why are we talking about this? Because yep. there is a strong connection. But just firstly, how did you land in sports journalism? Um, so I grew up on a farm in Wellsford, which is north of Auckland, if you don't know. Um, and my dad was a great sportsman. He played rugby for North Auckland, and uh, he was a great all-round sportsman, and he, he had two daughters, and I was always very conscious of the fact that nobody was getting up in the middle of the night to watch rugby with him when the All Blacks were playing in Britain. So from the, about the age of eight, I used to get up in the night <laughs> and, and watch rugby with him, and then I just started to fall in love with sport. And in my teenage years, it became cricket. And again, you know, it was the, we're talking about the All Blacks and the Black Caps here. I didn't know that women played either rugby or cricket. At that point, though 
I must say, I did start up the girls' first 11 at Rodney College, and I got to be the captain. Um, so, but, you know, my heroes were all male sports people, and I used to cut stories out of the newspapers and stick them <laughs> in scrapbooks, you know, Don Cameron and T.P. McLean and Paul Lewis, and, yeah, I used to have this scrapbook of, of sports coverage, and I guess... Suddenly I thought, oh, maybe I could be that person. So um, I applied when I was in the sixth form, or year 12, and uh, to um, what was then ATI, Auckland Technical Institute, journalism course, and failed the first time. So I went and worked in a bank for a year, and then applied again and got in. And in those days, you only had to do six months study, and then you were a journalist which is just crazy. But to be honest, I think it's the best way to do it. You know, it's three years now, or four in some cases. But um, we were green, but man, we got thrown in the deep end, and it was it was awesome. So my first job was at the Bay of Plenty Times in Tauranga, and I was a general news reporter, but I made it clear that I wanted to do sport, so I was allowed to cover the netball. And I never played netball. I've never played a game of netball in my life. But um, 35 years later, I'm still covering netball. And so it was a great introduction, really. And I also got the opportunity to work in the features department and write sports profiles. And I soon figured out that that was where my true interest in, in journalism lay. It was in telling people's stories. So a year later, a year after I started there, I, I went to work at the Herald. And that was my dream job. And it took a couple of years for me to work my way into the sports department. Um, in fact, I was the Auckland District Court reporter and covering a case where the defendant threatened to kill me. That was when I got my break in sport because I went back to the office and they said, oh, OK, we're taking you out of this round. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to sport. I've been telling you that for three years. So uh, my first gig was the 1990 Commonwealth Games in Auckland and loved it. And, uh, yeah, have been covering sport pretty much ever since. So what was it like, that environment, um, as a female sports journalist? Um, because it's a fairly male-dominated industry. Yes, absolutely. So I was the only female in, in this Herald Sports Department for the whole 10 years that I was there. Um, you know, there were about eight men reporters, and you know what? I can honestly say that during that time, it never really occurred to me that I was the only woman there. I was never made to feel like that. I was um, part of this family. Oh, I loved it. They were 10 of the best years of my life. And I was given so many opportunities, including the yachting round, uh, which I never expected in my life and initially did not want. It's a story there, isn't there? Yeah. So um, I was covering sports like hockey and cycling, netball, gymnastics. And the sports editor came up to me and said, look, I've been covering yachting up until now, but I'm, I'm going to concentrate on editing the section. So um, you are now covering yachting. And I was terrified. I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about boats. I went into the women's toilets and cried and thought, how am I going to get out of this? 
but you know I took it like a dose of salt and yeah <laughs> how do I put this probably the best experience in my career was being put onto that round the places that I got to go to the things that I got to report on the people that I got got to meet especially the people that I got to meet um, really formed my career yeah so what's your background in the sport if any absolutely none to be honest um, I'd never, uh, my uncle had a yacht and I think I went on it twice as a kid, but you know, it was just a matter of holding on to the side and being terrified. Uh, and you know, people have asked me, you know, did it make you want to become a sailor? Why didn't you go and have sailing lessons? At that point in my life, I was a single mum, bringing up my son Mark, and I was reporting on other sports as well. And the just, I just, the opportunity didn't arise really and my you know my main and when I wasn't at work I was looking after my son so I never did it and a lot of people will probably think well how on earth can you report on an America's Cup or an Olympics or around the world race when you have no knowledge of sailing but what I did was I took the advice of Sir Terence McLean, who, you know, was probably, was and still is, you know, our greatest sports reporter in New Zealand's history. And he said, the human story is the best story. And I've taken that with me all the way through. And so the way my approach to yachting was to tell the people's stories, you know. And as we know, there's some larger-than-life characters in the sport. And so... Getting to meet them, getting to know them, getting to tell their stories was so rewarding to me. And, yeah, so, you know, I, I made sure that I learned about what I was trying to talk about. I asked lots of questions and I read books and I watched, you know, later on, I guess, YouTube videos or whatever. But, you know, the, the trick for me was telling the stories through those people so that they were telling the story. And I'd like to think that it worked. Did it work? I actually think sometimes coming in from a background of, of not being an expert can sometimes help because yeah. you can tell the story on a level um, where anybody can understand it, yeah. not just the expert. And that creates more of a rich sort of flavour in your writing anyway. Yeah, that's been hugely important to me. So every time I write a story, no matter what it is, I'm writing it for my mum. So if my mum can understand it, that's fine. If my mum can't understand it, I've failed, really. The trick is exactly that, is that, you know, I think we were told when we first started writing that we were aiming for an audience of 12-year-olds, you know, the the reading age of a 12-year-old. But um, I just, you're right, I want everybody to be able to, to, you know, I guess, guess nowadays click on a story and be able to understand what you're telling and, and to go away with something, you know, to be um, a little bit educated or a little bit wiser or whatever or, or just a little bit more entertained, whatever it is. Mm. But um, I've always made sure that I'm not writing for a yachting audience specifically or, or a cycling audience or a you know, rugby audience, whatever it is. 
I want everybody to be able to take an interest in that. And maybe, you know, it means that they take an interest in a sport they've never been interested in before. So it's to get more people involved and interested. I think it's probably even more important in the yachting because the America's Cup just held such a fascination with people in this country. I yeah. mean, most people aren't experts, although they probably now profess to be experts after so many years. Oh, of... yeah. They come and tell me, don't you worry. Yeah. Um, 95 then. Mm. So you head to San Diego, your first America's Cup. Yeah. Just tell me about that experience, your first kind of major event in the mm. yachting world. Yeah, it was incredible. Though, can I just rewind and say the 93-94 Whitbread Round the World race kind of introduced me to that level of sailing, um, especially the... Oh, I, I went to Perth for the arrival of that leg when... New Zealand Endeavour had been dismasted and, and they came in under jury rig and that was amazing. And then um, yeah, when they came into Auckland in the middle of the night and um, Endeavour in Tokyo, Dixon and Dalton battling, oh, just amazing memories. I remember going into the press conference when at four o'clock in the morning when it was dark and coming out and it was daytime and just being so disoriented it was like where am I what's just happened it was it was just otherworldly you know that to me that sticks with me forever so yeah then then the next one was 95 America's Cup in San Diego and I guess I arrived there a little bit green um I remember I was reporting on it from Auckland before I got there and I wrote a story that um Team New Zealand hadn't been beaten right through the rounds and were the wheels going to suddenly fall off like they had in previous? And I remember getting a call from Alan Sefton, who was um, Speed Blake's right-hand man, you know, just telling me off. And it's quite funny because I think, you know, that they were talking to this 24-, 25-year-old woman thinking, you know, we can influence her here. We can we can give her a good telling off, tell her she can't write stories like that about us. So yeah, that was a bit of an eye opener. But when I arrived in San Diego for the uh, Louis Vuitton final between Team New Zealand and One Australia, um, Team New Zealand were incredibly welcoming, and they opened their doors. You could go there every morning to see the boat leaving, but, you know, not just go onto the base at Shelter Island and, and watch the boat. You could go through the base. You can go through the offices and mingle with everybody and chat. And, oh, it was just so amazing. Now, compared to now, you know, you'd think it may be a reversal that it's got easier. It's got harder to, to talk to these people. But you could go in. And I remember one of my favourite days was <laughs> the day that Tim New Zealand lost. Um, when um, I was doing a story about what happens before they go on the boat and I was watching and, you know, I remember saying to Alan Sefton, why has Peter Blake got red socks on? And 
um, why is Sir Russell Coots the oh no sorry he wasn't neither of them was Sue's there but we can say that now why was Russell Coots the last person to get on the boat and you know it was all about the superstitions that they had and of course um, Blake didn't sail in that race and they lost and you know I wrote a story about you know these red socks and were they lucky and yeah it just kind of took off from there that legend. So it's your fault that we all wear red socks now, is it? Well, <laughs> gosh, I'd love to say it was just me. Um, it was TVNZ who picked up on it from there because they were looking at a way to help Team New Zealand raise money to buy a new spinnaker should they get in the America's Cup, and it was their idea. But, yeah, we, we helped to make the legend, I guess, which is cool. So what was special about that team to be able to win that America's Cup? So much. So many different things that all came together at once. They were an incredible team. And every I think it was the first time that you know everybody was involved in everything. And it, it, it kind of paved the way for future teams where, you know, what we saw in... Bermuda in 2017 when the boat pitch bowled and everybody got stuck in overnight and to, to you know help fix the boat and that began really in 1995 that culture that everybody could be involved in the design of the boat um, looking after the boat the sailing of it and it was, just, it was good timing, but it was also the amazing sailing brain of Russell Coots and the amazing ability to bring people together of, of Peter Blake and the fact that those two were able to work together in that syndicate. Um, yeah, I think that, was, that to me, again, you know, about people. Of course, the design of the boat was fantastic. It couldn't, you know, both of the boats were virtually unbeatable but to me it was about people the team yeah were you aware I guess of the interest that was building back home and, and the amount of the people were reading no no idea at all and that was the thing that I think surprised them and surprised the team you know you're in a bubble when you're over there because the American media really don't give many hoots about sailing so, you know, it was a regatta that was going on and people were interested in it, but we kind of had no idea until that final race. It was Mother's Day back in New Zealand and we were hearing about just, you know, downtown Auckland being swamped with people when they won. And two amazing things came out of that. One was... Louis Vuitton paid for the team and for a handful of the New Zealand reporters to fly to New York to take the America's Cup back to the New York Yacht Club. It's, you know, one of its original homes. And I remember to that point, I think Peter Blake kind of looked at me and thought, you know, who's this young girl, doesn't know anything about sailing, writing about it, who is she? And I remember him coming up to me in the models room in the New York Yacht Club and saying to me, I've, I've just read your story. Somebody said, sent over a bunch of heralds and he said, well done, you did good. And, you know, that was massive for me to get that 
from this man. And then suddenly I found, felt accepted and part of it. Not part of the team, but, you know, part of the sailing community then. And, yeah, I, I just, my relationship with yachting grew from there, really. Yeah. So what, oh. what impact does that sort of have on you as a journo then? Oh, massive. Because you've made those connections, you've got the respect and trust of the people who you know you're going to have to go back to to tell stories, you know, as it was for years to come. So getting the respect of, of the people that you're writing about, you know, of course you're going to, you know, piss some of them off sometimes and you're going to have to tell the truth about them sometimes that they're not going to like. But... At the same time, they should respect, be able to respect you for that because you know you're going to have to go back and keep talking to them. And I remember, you know, one of the first people to really encourage me was Grant Dalton, and that was from that New Zealand Endeavour campaign. And he just kept telling me to keep going, keep doing this, because I could have been lost. I could have just gone, oh, this is a bit too hard. I'll go and do something else. But his encouragement was huge for me. So, and, you know, we've, we've kept up that relationship right through, though I didn't see him much in this America's Cup, I have to say. But, um, you know, it's there, and, and I know that I have his respect. Because those relationships are critical in, in journalism, and we don't, or it's not possible to have a good one with everybody. Yeah. Do you have, did you have many run-ins with people specifically around America's Cup, you know, and what impact, I guess, might that have had on you? I think I probably did, but I've forgotten them. <laughs> Selective memory, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, you know, there were always... Oh, in the most recent America's Cup, I, one of the people from Prada, or Luna Rossa, was not happy with me when I wrote a story saying... Um, you know, that at that point, it was early, I think it was, you know, the early rounds of the Prada Cup, and they weren't doing well. They were very average. You know, they were <laughs> middle of the pack when you only had three challenges. But, you know, they, they hadn't done anything stunning, and I said so. And I remember him coming up to me in the in the media centre and saying, what has Luna Rossa done to you to make you hate us? I said, nothing, but... You know, I'm telling the story, and the story is that you haven't done much yet. And, you know, I haven't said you're out of this or anything like that. Um, but, you know, people are always going to read things the way that they want to read them. And he decided that I was, you know, offending all of Italy. But um, he got over it. We moved on. And, you know, you're always going to have that. But oh, I remember upsetting Chris Dixon, and for good reason. I had written a story about him in um, one of the Whitby races where he fell off a table in Punta Alla and um, hurt himself. Uh, and, you know, I got my facts second hand and um, he rang me from the hospital um, the next day to say, you know, he pointed out what I'd got wrong and I, I you know, I said, sure, tell me what really happened. And, you know, then I wrote a story the next day saying this is his version of events. And, yep, we've gone on really well ever, ever since. So I think, you know, it's about listening to people. If you if they do feel aggrieved or that you've, you know, 
got the story wrong, he listened to them and, and let them explain their side of it. And in some cases, you know, you might have to let them have their reply in the media as well. The America's Cup's also known for its dirty tricks and its controversy. Do you enjoy that side of it? I used to. I, I used to. I used to accept that that was part of it and, you know, get excited about, you know, the, the subterfuge and the um, scandal. And, but as you get older, I think you kind of, like, do I really need this in my life right now? Um, yeah, but I, I, don't, I don't like it when it, it completely takes over an event as it can with the America's Cup, especially beforehand, before there's any racing and there's nothing to say. Then something like that comes up and it just, you know, hits the headlines everywhere. And it's, yeah, it, it kind of takes away from the actual event itself and yeah I kind of struggle with it now but you know I think just have to get over it and get on with it. So fast forward five years we're in Auckland uh, the defence what what was different about that campaign if anything? What the public couldn't see was that there was a split in Team New Zealand uh, but you know I guess incredibly it, it's still they still held it together and you had one side running the event and one side running the defence and, and running both of them really successfully. Um, again, that team culture had carried over. Um, you know, they were able to, the, with the design of the boat, they were able to build on what they, the advantage that they already had with the original Black Magics. So, yeah... I, I really loved that one. I really loved that event. It, it remains my favourite because, you know, it was in my hometown and it was my newspaper was the main newspaper and people were really happy to talk to you and I got some amazing stories. And one of the most amazing things to this day is that, you know, I had a um, eight-year-old son. The Herald, bless them, paid my mother to look after my son so that I could virtually live in the Viaduct and cover the America's Cup every day for about four months. And that was amazing. That meant that I could completely focus on that. And so I thank my mother very much for <laughs> looking after my son. But um, just being completely immersed, or submerged, I guess, in, in an America's Cup, it's incredible, you know, it was almost like you were living in, in another world that, you know, downtown Auckland was its own city, its own country, and yeah, it was just brilliant, and it was amazing to see New Zealand's reaction to it, and to be part of that, yeah, I loved it. Of course, I didn't love 2003 so much. Yeah, let's move on to that. Mm. You know, there are lots of side stories going on there, not only about the boat, but the team, and then the, you know, the, the aftermath, I guess, of 2000 leading into that. Yeah. As a journalist, how did you sort of attack that one? Well, really interestingly, after um, Coots, Butterworth, and, and those, I think, five originally left Team New Zealand, it just... 
it left a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth, and I was I was kind of exhausted to be honest from covering that event so heavily that um, I left the sports department. I, I stopped covering sailing. Just said I had enough. Was that a principal reason for leaving? Yep. Yeah, it was. I just. I guess you get really involved, and you know, I I took it personally a bit, but I was I guess also you know I'd been covering sport for ten years and I it was time for me to have a change, so I went back to reporting in the news section for a year, and then I left the Herald to have our second son who's now nineteen, and. Um, started freelancing. So that 2003 America's Cup, I was actually freelancing for a whole bunch of different people, including doing some work for Team New Zealand. So um, it was more, you know, your kind of um, profile pieces on different sailors or designers, boat builders, whatever. Um, yeah, so it was a really different feeling covering that America's Cup. And, of course, we know what happened, and it was disappointing. But I'm still glad that I was there and, and to witness it and to be part of it. But, you know, that sport, you're not always the winner. And it was sad to see the America's Cup leave. But, you know, maybe it was time, and it was time to start fighting for it again. So you covered the 2017 event remotely. Yes, and then we obviously just had the recent one here um, earlier this year. What did you make of the last America's Cup? You know, I guess in context of these big monohulls in 95 and now all of a sudden we've got these big monohulls whipping around. Yeah. Did you embrace the, the new technology? Did you like what you were seeing? Yeah, I did. I did like it. Um, of course, I, I guess I get quite... Um, Romantic about the, you know, old IACC class, um, but there was no way that we were ever going back to having a monohull sitting in the water. That would have taken it backwards. So, I'm in awe, complete awe of what those designers came up with, and you just have you have to go with it. You have to embrace the change, and. You have to report on what you're seeing. So you can't let... The, I don't think you can let that cloud your perception of the event. You know, it's it's different and it is what it is. But And I can I see why it's gone that way. I see, you know, why catamarans came in and then boiling. And, it, you know, you have to keep people interested, and especially the new generation of, of fans coming through. So... Really clever, I think. Um, the technology is way beyond me, though. And um, But again, you know, you let the designers speak about that. You don't have to have your opinion on it. You can let them do the talking and the explaining. It's, it, it's your job to make sure that, you know, your mother can understand it or your, your, your children or whatever. Um, it, it's translating it into you know, understandable words, I guess. Did it feel natural being back in the America's Cup and environment again? And, you know, the, you talk about the relationships and a lot of those people that you knew had moved on. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, with COVID, 
there were only there were less than a handful of international journalists there, and of course that's part of my love of the event was meeting these international sailing journalists and becoming part of this family. It's amazing um, the relationships that you build through that, and and those people not being able to come this time. It did change the experience, you know. You did feel like you were walking into something completely different. And, you know, only having three challenges there when previously in, in New Zealand, you know, that had, you know, 11, 12, 13 challenges. And, you know, so you get less story ideas, I guess. <laughs> but you just took it for what it was. And... God, you know, I had to keep reminding yourselves how lucky we were to even be covering a live event in the world right now. And, you know, that was, I, I remember going on um, BBC World TV doing a few interviews with them. And they were like, What's it like being outside? <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm outside now and it just feels normal when you kind of start feeling guilty. But um, then you started to realise that the rest of the world saw this as, you know, the start of return to normal and were grateful for it. So by telling the stories, you know, you felt really honoured to be doing it and to be inviting the rest of the world in to something that was really quite amazing. So journalists always know what's going on, obviously. Um, so what's happening for the next America's Cup? What's the good oil? I don't know if you want to use this. Um, I've decided to retire from the America's Cup. So I've been covering it for 26 years. And I think it's time that somebody else had a voice. I've loved it. It's been a huge part of my life. But I think it's time for me to concentrate on other areas of journalism where I can make a difference, like mentoring young women. So as much as I've loved, absolutely loved the America's Cup, it's time for me to hang up my hat. Oh my goodness, it sounds like I was really important in it. Um, but yeah, I've just decided to do something different. Well, it's a bit of an end of an era, because PJ was saying that you know he believes it's time for someone else to to come forward and have a, have a voice on there as well. Yeah, yeah, and I totally agree. And, you know, in PJ's case, oh, my God, there is no one like him in the world. And But it is, you know, you, you are also conscious of the fact that while you're doing it, you're taking someone else's place. So, you you know, I want, I'd love to, you know, foster someone to come through and, and cover it now. So if there are any uh, journalists out there who would like to cover the America's Cup, just give me a call. And of course, you know all about the tax and clues and jibes and all the terminology that everybody needs to know, right? Don't have to. Don't have to at all. <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, what other sort of assignments have you had in sailing other than the America's Cup? Uh, I covered the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. Um, I was covering yachting and hockey there. And so I got to see Barbara Kendall and Aaron McIntosh win their bronze medals in board sailing, which was brilliant. Um, I think the rest of it was a little bit disappointing. But um, 
Yeah, it was it was fantastic. It was in a great part of Sydney. Um, great. I, that was my one and only Olympics. And um, I just got engaged to my husband, who was also there covering it, so we kind of saw it as our engagement party, <laughs> one great big engagement party. It was exhausting, absolutely exhausting. But um, so brilliant to, you know, be at the opening ceremony and... I got to go to gymnastics and I got to go to some equestrian and yeah it was it was just again this other world environment you know you're in this bubble um, but I didn't I, I didn't stay in the village I because um, you know there's a media village um, I stayed in an apartment at Potts Point to be closer to yachting. So I, it was nice because as much as I was involved in the whole Olympic thing, I was still, you know, could go down the road to the sushi shop and buy my lunch. And so it was a really nice blend of, you know, two different worlds. But yeah, I've covered that, covered uh, most of the around the world races. And you know, the international match racing events that they used to have at the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron, they were so cool. I hope that I just carry on covering yachting too, even though, you know, I might not do the America's Cup. Um, I love seeing the new talent coming through, especially the young women coming through. You, you mentioned the, the match racing um, series here. Um, I'm told that was your first ever assignment as a yachting journalist. What was that experience like? Yeah, well, it was an experience that would have probably put most people off. I um, remember going down to the squadron and, you know, they would have seen this young woman come along who, who they'd never seen before, um, obviously knew very, very little about yachting at that point because it was my first regatta. And I remember... Um, feeling very lost and upset that I wasn't being taken seriously and I went back to work and told the editor who promptly got on the phone to the Commodore of the squadron and said you must treat her with respect she's she's the new yachting reporter at the Herald and um, yeah and, and, and um, I remember T.P. McLean being very upset because he had been quite involved in yachting reporting too and his heyday and um, he told the squadron off as well. So I guess that could have been a turning point for me that I could have just said, oh, I'm out of here, I'm not doing this. But there's a little bit of me that doesn't like being defeated so I kept going back and built up a really good relationship with the squadron and just keep going, yeah, and figured out again that it's all about the people. You know, I didn't have to know everything about the MRX boats or, you know, whether they were tacking or jibing. No, I did learn that. Don't, don't worry, I do know the difference between that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that, that people were important and it was important to make those relationships really early on. Was it through a relationship with... Peter Blake that you worked for the Sir Peter Blake Trust, now known as Blake, uh, I think it was about for about 10 years from 2010? Yes, yeah. I was, um, at that point I was freelancing and 
the trust approached me and asked if I would um, write their annual magazine and help them with their annual awards. And, you know, I, I absolutely jumped at the chance because, you know, I've really had huge respect for Peter Blake. And the really interesting thing with him was that I remember during our, you know, his yachting career, and we were reporting on that, you know, sometimes it was really hard to get more than, you know, five sentences out of him. Uh, but then when he started Blake Expeditions, I remember going on board his boat down in the viaduct and he talked and talked and talked and talked. I virtually didn't have to answer any, ask any questions because he was just so passionate about it and so open about it. I was like, this is a different man. And I remember I was about eight months pregnant with Kieran when Speeder Blake was killed and just still to this day, you know, just disbelief. I still can't believe that it happened. And I remember talking to Alan Sefton on the day after and he said to me, whatever you do when you have this, your son, when you it was a son, um, let him climb mountains, let him swim oceans, let him be an adventurer. And that was amazing. My son doesn't do either of those yet. But, you know, we've never stopped him from doing it. And I just remember that advice. And it was so cold. It was, yeah, I, I just wanted... So when that job came up, that opportunity to carry on his legacy, you know, I just I couldn't believe that I'd been offered it, really. And it was a great organisation to be involved with. And, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's become very much more environmental-focused. And I think that Peter would have liked that. Well, I guess that job allowed you to continue to be involved as a, as a journalist in the sort of the nautical theme anyway. Um, and you continue to write, uh, as you say, about yachting and sailing. Um, how does this sport kind of stack up in terms of gender equity and the way it's portrayed? I actually think that yachting does really well. Thanks to you. Michael, I think you've changed that. I think women's sailing, you know, gets gets good coverage. I mean, you know, it, I really like the fact that, you know, with the Olympics, it's becoming 50-50, these mixed gender boats. Um, and I don't see that as tokenism. I think it's just the way that the world is now. And... I really love what Yachting New Zealand is doing with the women's sailing program, um, the work that uh, Rosie and Raina and Erica are doing is, is fantastic. And I love the idea that you've got to listen to what young women want and to what girls, what do they want out of the sport? And to help guide them through it too, to, you know, um, help them decide which kind of boat would be best for them and why are they doing this? Do they want to be competitive or do they just want, you know, 
to be involved in a sport, you know, do it for the social aspect. Um, but just listening to what women want is so important, and I think most sports have kind of failed there. But I really like that you guys are doing this, um, and you're already seeing results. You're already seeing more women getting it and girls getting involved. Of course, the, the main problem is keeping young women in, in sport through their teenage years, which is the huge drop-off time. And so, you know, asking them, what would you want to do? What would keep you doing this is really important, and that's what you're doing. So I, I applaud you for what you're doing. And I guess, you know, I see that we have a role in that too, and part of that is creating role models. And so making, you know, the, the women who at the top of your sport, making them kind of accessible or, you know, visible to girls and boys um, that so that they can see, you know, the strength and the skill and the passion of these women and that hopefully that there is a pathway, you know, that's the other thing, is making that pathway really visible, that, you know, there is something, you know, you can make a career out of sailing and not just as a sailor and encouraging women to start thinking about coaching and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a huge field really, eh? And there's just so much that you can take advantage of now and grow. It's an area that can just grow so much. And yeah, so our responsibility is to make role models, I think. So do you, do you believe that quotas and things like the ocean race and GP are a good thing? Yeah, I do. I think they're a starting point. And I know a lot of people think, you know, no, you can only, you should only be allowed in the crew if you've proved that you're worth and you, you know, you're as good as the next man and all that kind of stuff. But how do you get an in? How do you get a foot in the door? You have to have a quota. And it's worked in the Volvo Ocean Race. Sorry, now just the Ocean Race. It's worked. And it's something that I really would love to see in the America's Cup. And I know that there are people in, within Team New Zealand who agree about that. And so maybe we'll see it. Maybe not this America's Cup, but the following one. I really like what GP are doing. You know, gradually introducing women to the crews and that may be <coughs> sorry that may be the way to do it how powerful a statement would it be if america's cup did do that the biggest statement that you could make for women sailing i think again you know there'll be people who don't agree with it but we you know we've seen okay it's not new we've seen women's crews competing in the america's cup mixed crews, um, and there's you know always the promise of, of of the next America's Cup having mixed crews. But the financial reality of this is that women's sport find it really hard to get financial backing, and we all know that that's the main you know point of an America's Cup you know campaign is to get money, or else you can't do it. So this way, introducing you know a woman or two into a crew, it's just going to make it more of a reality to the point where, you know, you won't need quotas. 
that woman will just automatically be part of crews. It's going to take a while. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it's the way that it has to start. And if the America's Cup does it, you know, other events around the world will, you know, maybe wake up to it too. Just just on a slightly different tack, you wrote a story uh, um, story earlier this year with two-time Olympic medalist Joe Alley, um, who admitted that she didn't look after herself well enough when she was competing because she thought she had to conform to a certain body size and, and she had a number of unhealthy side effects. That story also talked about the fact that three-quarters of New Zealand's top athletes felt elite sporters putting them under pressure to look a certain way which is potentially damaging their health. So what, I guess, needs to be done about sort of understanding the needs of female athletes and where does the media sort of come into this? Yeah, I think this is, to me, this is the biggest issue that women in sport is facing right now and it's the one that I've kind of, if I'm going to, you know, wave a flag, it's women's health in sport that I'm that I'm really passionate about. And most sports at the elite level are realizing that a healthy athlete is a better performing athlete and that women aren't the same as men when it comes to competing or training that we that we have to look at them differently. And they have different, you know, Hormones play a huge part in our lives, male or female. And getting athletes and coaches and um, nutritionists and physiologists all working together to get the best out of each individual athlete rather than training them all the same. I think it's about coaches, male and female, being able to talk to female athletes about their periods about their cycles, about how much energy they're expending and how much food they're eating. That's huge, huge um, problem in, our, in sport, for especially for women, that they're putting out all this energy, they're doing all this training and competing, and they're not eating enough to balance that because they think that eating less means they're going to be leaner and fitter and stronger when it's the absolute opposite. So it's about having these conversations, but it's at the moment, you know, that's that's happening and that's great, but it's at the very elite level. So how do you filter that down right down to our teenage girls who are just starting to, you know, especially those who are looking at a professional career or, you know, getting more involved in sport, that's, that sport starts to become more important to them. How are we getting the message to them that they need to eat properly, eat well, eat a lot? Um, you know, if they don't have their period, that's a bad thing. So I see that as my job in the media to get that message out to everybody. And I um, feel really strongly about that. And, you know, it's... Ten years ago, I don't know if you would have been allowed to use the word period in a, in a sports story, um, other than describing, you know, a netball quarter as a period. Um, but we've, we've all got to be able to have those conversations now for the sake of our young women. You know, we've seen athletes who haven't been able to have children 
because they didn't eat properly when they were competing. And it's really sad. And, you know, it's sad. If I'd known then what I know now, you know, their lives would have been completely different. Are you surprised it's taken so long for us to have these conversations? You know, we're sitting here in 2021. We think we're a fairly progressive sort of world. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a real culture thing, a real society thing. And, you know, it it comes down to women's health in general, not even in sport, but, you know, so many um, illnesses or diseases that are um, specifically female, um, still not being recognised, things like endometriosis, you know. Um, So it's just about all of society kind of going, it's okay to talk about this. It's, you know, we need to know about this. Um, I remember speaking at the Royal Akarana Yacht Club when we had a, um, like, women's sailing symposium during the NACRA and 49er Worlds. And... We had a female panel and we were talking about periods and things like that and how they affected um, the, the female sailors. And afterwards, a dad came up and goes, you were talking about some kind of app that measures the, their menstrual cycles. How do we get that? It was like, oh my God, a dad just came and asked that. And that was mind-blowing and it was so cool to think that People, you know, everybody's wanting to get on board with this and to help their, the young women to be the very best they can be when they're sailing or cycling or running, whatever. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool to see that change is happening. And I just, I feel for people like Joe, who, you know, that that, that affected them so much, you know, it's affected her so much during her career um but you know that now she can now take what she learned or what she's learned since and help other young women you've you've done a number of those kind of forums like the one at Akarana and um you talk about um mentoring young female journalists now what I guess is your sort of main advice to them or you know how seriously are you taking this role Oh, very seriously. I think I'm very privileged to be in a position where I can help young women who want to become sports writers because there aren't many ins. And, you know, there weren't many when I was, when I first started out, there's probably less now because newsrooms are much smaller and we've seen, you know, regional news sports hubs just disappear you know sports rooms don't exist in lots of regional newspapers now so to be able to give women the chance to have a voice in the media is so so cool and that's that's also one of my other huge passions now it's 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 not about me but it's about taking what I've learned and helping more young women become sports journalists because you know lots of women who think yeah I want to be journalist and I love sport but oh there's no jobs out there you know that that could be true but but by giving them the opportunity to write and and to kind of help guide them this is how you write a story this is how you write a feature this is how you write a column um it's really empowering and really cool and I just want there to be more women's voices out there do you ever see a day 
when coverage of female sport is on an equal level to men's sport? Oh, I'd love to say yes, but I can't see it happening in my lifetime. You know, that growth is, is slow. And, man, you know, it took 10 years for it to grow 4%. So wouldn't it be amazing? But I, I just don't see it happening in my lifetime. It'd be cool if it did, but, yeah. Generational change, huh? Yep, absolutely. What other sort of things for the future for you um, as a as a sports journo or a mother and grandmother? Yeah, I'd like to spend more time with my grandchildren. I've only got one so far, but yeah, but still, you know, our youngest son is really interested in getting involved in sports media as well, and so watching him you know, grow his career will be amazing. And, you know, I'm going to keep writing until I can't write, I guess. It's it's funny, like when I go on a holiday, um, by about day five of the holiday, I start dreaming about writing. I'm writing stories in my sleep, honestly. They, they don't make any sense. But my brain is ready to go back. And I'm just so... I, every time I sit down to write a story, I'm excited and I want to make it the best story that I've ever written. And as long as I feel like that, I'll keep doing it. And yeah, I want to tell all kinds of stories, you know, male and female. Sport is just, it's just theatre, isn't it? It's just so rich with drama and tragedy and winning and losing and ah it's just so cool there's just so many great stories out there to be told as you know and that's what keeps me in love with it I guess so yep I would like to have a whole stable of sports journalists working for me but you know that means money um but I would love to think that, you know, we grew Locker Room into something even bigger and, and it becomes mainstream and that might be pie in the sky, but, you know, we'll just do it one day at a time. Well, keep dreaming. You're also uh, New Zealand Sports Journalists of the Year. They'll be, the, the sponsors will be coming in in their droves, won't they? Yes. Shall I, is this the part where I put my email address so that people can... <laughs> Right in. I'm sure they can find it on the net. <laughs> um, just before I let you go, um, not being a sailor, um, you may not have one specifically of your own, but can you tell us your worst wipeout ever story? Yeah, and it would have to be the first race of the 2003 America's Cup match between Team New Zealand and Alingi and... You know, going into that series, nobody had any idea who was going to win, as with most America's Cup matches. And, you know, Team New Zealand had invested a lot of time and money into the hula on their boat, and, you know, was this going to be the deciding factor in this match? And it was, I remember it being a pretty ugly day. You know, it was grey and windy and rainy and ugh. And watching the New Zealand boat fall apart was just heartbreaking. And I you know, have this memory of the great blue bucket 
99-cent warehouse blue bucket that was bailing water out of the boat. And it was suddenly like, is this the beginning of the end? And unfortunately it was. And it was just so heartbreaking knowing what that Team New Zealand camp had been through just to see it all kind of collapsing on day one was heartbreaking and I'll never forget that that was just one of the worst sporting days of my life I think Could you imagine the America's Cups boats of today having a 99 cent warehouse blue bucket I think they should all have one really Compulsory put a kid out written into the deed of gift (laughs) Absolutely yeah Yeah, well, I'm sure it saved that boat. But, um, yeah, yes, not having had any wipeouts myself, even though I was back in the media centre, you kind of felt like you were on that boat at the time and just wishing that it would stay above the water. Well, thank you so much for your time today and and talking about some of your career and, and I guess certainly the position of, of women in sport today. It's a particularly important issue and... Um, appreciate your kind words about yachting New Zealand in there. Um, yep, absolutely. So, look, good luck with Locker Room. Thank you. And I look forward to reading some more of your stories um, in the near future. About women's yachting, eh? Yeah, yeah. give me a call. Yeah, okay. I'm really honoured. Thank you so much for having me on. This is really special. Thanks for tuning in to Broad Reach Radio. If you've got this far, you've hopefully enjoyed it, so please like or share the episode or better yet, follow our podcast. It's the best way to increase the following and amplify the interviews. If you've got any suggestions or feedback, please email michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Otherwise, I'll catch you in a fortnight. Take care.